as I was getting ready for today, I was uh, writing an email out to the church, letting them know we weren't able to meet outside because of a, a big storm coming in. And uh, my wife, Jen, reminded me that this, this doesn't really count as, as a big storm. And she can say this because she's lived through uh, a typhoon and tornadoes and hurricanes from the different places that she did growing up. Uh, but for me and all San Diegans, if you, there's a little bit of rain, we know this is, this is, a, this is a serious deal. This is Stormwatch 2020. Uh, reminds me of uh, a year ago, there was a fall festival at our kids' school. And while we're there, it begins to start raining and people continue just to do the carnival rides. But then uh, lightning and thunder start uh, coming pretty loudly. And Vienna, who was six years old at that time, uh, really had never encountered anything to that proportion. Um, and she starts freaking out. And so she wants to leave immediately, wants to go home. Um, and so she, we're walking to the car and, and there's this huge this strike of lightning um, not too far away and there's just thundering so loudly. And she just becomes paralyzed with fear. And so I have to literally pick her up for the rest of the way. She's sobbing, um, is trying to gain a sense of comfort and clarity. Is this gonna be okay? And uh, when we get there, I, it, just that picture of, of my daughter coming kind of to the end of herself and uh, finding her only sense of comfort and peace in, the, in being wrapped up in the arms of her father. I want you to kind of have that imagery in your mind as we move forward. Uh, and the reason being that is we're going to be talking about Jesus and his followers in the midst of a storm. And as we do that... Um, I understand that we are in the midst of maybe one of the biggest kind of cultural storms uh, that we've experienced in modern history. All that 2020's brought, uh, this past week with the elections, uh, there is this, this growing sense of this storm that we're, everyone just wants to end. Uh, we want this sense of chaos and uncertainty uh, for that to begin to and be exchanged out for some sense of normalcy. And so what we're going to be doing today is looking at a passage of Scripture of how Jesus responds in the midst of a storm, how His disciples respond in the midst of a storm. Um, I believe there's so much in, in this passage. And so in Mark chapter 6, verses 45, Jesus has just fed the 5,000. Um, his disciples uh, have just gone out two by two and minister. This has been a pretty heavy uh, ministry week, if you will, uh, for Jesus and his followers. It says, Immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up to the mountainside to pray. Later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake, and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them when they saw him walking on the lake and they thought it was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately he spoke to them and he said, Take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down. They were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret and anchored there. 
As soon as they got out of the boat, people recognized Jesus. They ran throughout the whole region and carried the sick on mats to wherever that he was and wherever he went, into villages, towns, and countrysides. They placed the sick in the marketplaces. They begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak, and all who touched him were healed. Now, this story has a level of familiarity, um, but there's, there's really three things here that we have to understand in order for this story to get all the meaning that I believe the author is trying to communicate. He's wanting his audience to understand. Uh, the first thing that we have to understand here is, is geographically, um, there's a lot of words that are used that would have made sense to someone who would have been familiar with the region. Um, and they're actually, uh, but if we don't know those words or that we don't know that region well, we don't understand what's really going on. So let me kind of help explain this to you. And there actually should be some, some pictures uh, on the screen. But uh, they, they just finished feeding 5,000. It says that Jesus got the disciples in the boat and sent them across the Sea of Galilee to Bethsaida. So across from Bethsaida would be, uh, would be this part of, of the Sea of Galilee region uh, near Mount Arbel. Mar- Mount Arbel is where many theologians believe that Jesus would go to often to pray. Um, it's a pretty significant hike to go to the top of this mountain. And so what we know from this text is that he sends his disciples to cross the Sea of Galilee to go to Bethsaida while he goes up to what we can assume to be Mount Arbel. It's the only mountain uh, in that region. And as he's going there, he sees uh, that they are struggling because the wind is against them. The Sea of Galilee is famous for being positioned kind of in this bowl. And at different times of the day, both in the early morning and the afternoon, these squalls, these winds can come so strong into this place that there can be some pretty significant storms. And so the disciples knowing this are not trying to sail across. Uh, They're trying to use oars to row across, but they're rowing against the wind across the Sea of Galilee. And it says that Jesus from the mountain sees them. So it's not like Jesus is just standing at the shore watching this. He's pretty far away. And so Jesus makes his way and says by the time he makes it to him, it's early morning. So this has already been maybe a couple hours of watching them struggle and they're not getting anywhere. And if you've ever rowed before, you know, this is one way to get your arms really tired really fast. And so he gets to them and he starts walking across and it says almost as he was going to pass them and they see this guy walking on the water and they just kind of freak out and they think it's a ghost. And they call to him and Jesus comes into their boat and he calms, uh, calms the sea. Now, this is the second time. If you remember in Mark chapter four, uh, this, Jesus is asleep on the boat and calms the wind and the waves. This is the second time now Jesus has taken this massive storm that's going on and he makes it completely still. Now, something interesting happens. It says that they anchored at the place where they were going, but it wasn't Bethsaida. It was Gennesaret. Now, if you were to look at a map, one of the things that's interesting is that Gennesaret is on the opposite end. It's actually really close to where they will probably would have launched from, which really kind of leaves the reader perplexed. Like they never made it to Bethsaida. Matter of fact, they probably didn't make it farther than a quarter of a mile. They just spent all night rowing and then they land at Gennesaret. So I want us to just remember that just geographically what's happening here. 
Um, but let's talk about let's talk about historically. There's these references that are happening here. So we know it's going on geographically. Historically, there's three things that would have stood out to the the ears of the original audience. Um, and these three things all tie back to Israel being rescued from Egypt and being brought into the promised land. The first is that we see that Jesus has control over the wind and the waves, which immediately would have, would have drawn the attention um, of when Moses stretched out his staff and Yahweh has control over the wind and the waves. Exodus 14 says, Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right hand and on their left. And so this reference point that Jesus has control over water and wind is this nod to his divinity, that he is Yahweh. He's the only one who has control over this chaotic thing that even the best fishermen had no control over in that day. Um, The second thing is that the context of this has to do with bread. Remember, they just fed the 5,000 and it said that they, but you would think after Jesus fed the 5,000 that there would just be this abundance of faith that Jesus, this rabbi they're following, can do anything. But similarly to Israel, they're quick to forget. Psalm 105.40 says this, They asked and he brought them quail. He fed them well with the bread of heaven. If you remember, God provided manna, provided bread miraculously for the Israelites while they're in the desert. He opened up the rock and water gushed out. It flowed like a river in the desert. And so this this idea that the disciples saw Jesus do a massive miracle with a bread coming out of nowhere and immediately forget is again, it's this nod to the history of Israel. They're doing the same thing that, that they had done repeatedly. They would forget the miraculous wonders of God that would bring them to salvation. And the third thing that it mentions here, it says that their hearts were hard. Now, that phrasing seems really interesting of, of the reason that they didn't understand what was going on here was their hearts were hard. Now, that could be an allusion to Pharaoh, but probably most significantly, that's a reference to, once again, Israel. That Jesus is putting himself in the place of Yahweh and his disciples are continue to remind the reader that they are similar to Israel. Now, listen how Psalm 95, 7-9 says this, Today, if only you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts talking to Israel, as you did in Meribah um, with the bread, as you did at Massa with the water in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested me and they tried, though they had seen, tried me, though they had seen what I did. Um, and so uh, I hope that you, we understand this point. Geographically, this is a little confusing uh, it, because they never end up at Bethsaida. Historically, it's a little disheartening. Uh, because Jesus, as much as he's showing himself in, in his divine power, the disciples are acting like Israel. They're forgetting. Their hearts are harding, hardened because of their unbelief. Um, last, I want to talk about uh, literarily. The literature that's happening here is really fascinating. Mark records this story, but he leaves out one important detail that Matthew doesn't. And it's the detail that this is the same story when Peter walks on the water. Now, why that's interesting 
is because Mark's gospel is the first gospel that was written, and most theologians believe that it was written from Peter's perspective. I find it really fascinating that, that Mark is recording Peter's take on the gospel, and Peter does not, even though he's telling the story, doesn't tell the part of him walking on water. Um, listen, Matthew's account is literally verbatim and saying the same thing in Matthew 14, but it leaves out this chunk in Mark's gospel. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you in the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water and came towards Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink and cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You have little faith, he said. Why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshiped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. Um, for me, as I was studying out this week and I realized, these are two separate stories. This is the same story. Peter just omitted this part of the story. We kind of celebrate this as, as, G, as Peter walked in the water, but in Peter's eyes, this is a failure. This was an invitation he had from Jesus to do something miraculous, and he wasn't able to complete it. So again, understanding the story in Mark chapter 6, we have to remember these things. Geographically, it's confusing. Historically, it's a little disheartening based from the disciples' point of view. And literarily, Peter's embarrassed. And so as we think about Jesus in the middle of the storm, uh, for me, all of these things, the geography, the history, and the literature, are pointed, pointing to this one theme, that it's not about a destination. God is, is not only trying to get them somewhere. It's not about the destination. It's about dependence. Everything about this story is pointing to the major theme here was not just about being delivered from the storm, but is understanding the dependence in the midst of the storm. I mean, I mean, think about this. They never end up Bethsaida, but you almost have to ask the question, well, maybe that was the point. Jesus wasn't trying to get them to a town. He was trying to get them to believe. He's trying to increase their dependence. He's literally showing them that I'm Yahweh, you're Israel. Don't forget. Don't forget what I've done. Depend on me. Don't have a short-term memory when it comes to my faithful work in your life. And even with Peter omitting this fact as, as, as Mark is recording this, I think it points to Matthew's later gospel pointing out, listen, it's, this wasn't about Peter walking on the water successfully. It's about even when you have your eyes fixated on the wrong thing, on the wind and the waves, it's about depending on Jesus to be there in that moment to pick you up. And so what I would like for us to think about um, as we look at this passage, maybe just with new lenses, as, as we think about the storm is swirling around us right now, uh, just kind of with the cultural moment that we're in, that maybe, maybe in the midst of this, it's not that God is so much trying to get us through this storm, which I think all of us are praying for. And, and maybe that's part of it, right? Jesus calms the wind. He does. But maybe it's as we're waiting for the storm to pass, as we're waiting for the winds to die down, maybe there's something that God is trying to teach us in the midst of this, and we, and we can't miss it. Please, if, you, if you're hearing me, my, I'm imploring you, I'm begging you, 
that we would use this season, this year, 2020, that we joke about and we make memes about as we're in the middle of this wild election cycle, uh, that we would find ourselves saying, you know what? I'm not just going to try and get to my destination, getting out of this. I want to work on my dependence. I want to grow in my desperation for God. And so kind of the natural question is, if, if that's really the point of this story, is to show our, our need and our desperation for Jesus to be our Savior, to be the one who calms the storms, to be the one who comes alongside us. How do we do that? How do we grow our dependence? So I would just offer just, just three things for you to think about. Number one, remember his faithfulness from the past. Number two, to redirect your focus on what God's doing right now. And number three is that we would actually rest in his future that only he knows, but he is creating. And so just, just those three points that we would remember his faithfulness. And again, I think it's one of the main things that we need to make sure that we don't follow the pattern of the disciples, we don't follow the pattern of Israel in the desert, that we have to rehearse the faithfulness of God. How has God been faithful to you in your life? How has God been faithful to you this year? It can, is that something that you can rehearse in your mind, in your heart, so that in moments that it feels like God's presence and peace is absent, you can rest on, I know God has been faithful. I know God has been faithful in the past. And if you're having a hard time finding that in your own story, then read the story of Scripture and read it again and read it again. We have to remember His faithfulness. Number two, we have to redirect our focus. You think about the, the, the moment when Peter's doing something that no one's ever done. He's walk, walking on water. And the failure comes not from the lack of strength. It's from the lack of focus. He, he lost his gaze on Jesus and places it on the wind. And so I think one of the things that we can learn from this passage is we have to keep our focus on Jesus. Uh, three ways that we can do this practically. Number one, um, fast and pray. And yes, I, I not just pray, but fast and pray. Recently, I just did a, a season of fasting and praying with my, with my, with my family, and it was so um, transformative because what fasting reveals is your greatest appetites. It reveals a sense of desperation. Um, and in that, it forms your prayer. It forms how you speak because it's coming out of a place of desperation. Uh, Eugene Peterson um, and his book, Answering God, talks about how there's three levels of language. Uh, le- level one, um, talks, it comes from a place of desperation. This is where we see children learn their speech. Right? Before they can ever say anything intelligible, they're communicating. This language is, I need food, I need um, comfort, I need to be cleaned. It's, it's this sense of desperation. Um, we can also see this same level, level one of language come out even when a new couple falls in love and they can talk on the phone for hours and hours really about nothing. 
and even the tone in their voice is slightly annoying, right? It's just desperation that's being communicated. It's not the words as much as it is this, this underlining subconscious level of desperation. Uh, level number two of language is information. It moves from desperation to information. This is, happens when we're kids. All of a sudden, we know how to name things, and we can ask questions, and we can gain knowledge. And as we grow older, there becomes this level three of language, which is motivation. This is when you, you use your information, you use your desperation to motivate other people. That could be for sales or things like that. Um, what's sad, Eugene Peterson points out in his book, is that oftentimes we leave level one and never return. And we spend the rest of our lives trying to develop our information, informational language, and our motivational language. And we forget about our desperation language. Prayer and fasting is a return to this desperation language. Um, it's no longer about information or motivation, which think about how often our prayers are filled with those types of, um, that type of those themes. And God's like, no, no, no. Desperately come to him. Fast and pray. Use this to come back to him in such a powerful way. Uh, secondly, meditate on and memorize scripture. Um, this is one of those ways that we can redirect our focus. Um, you know, I've, I've been thinking about the difference between formation and information. And really the biggest thing between those two things of information and formation is time. Let me give you an example. Um, oftentimes we turn on the news or we open up a website about the news for information. But if we spend enough time on that, it stops being information and it starts being formation. We know this because of the level of fear and anxiety that exists in this. Uh, A.J. Swoboda uh, talks about compassion fatigue is a real onset of exhaustion from the concerns of the world. Studies show how the flooding of news actually harms our ability to have real compassion <clears throat> and to do something helpful. And so one of the things I would encourage you to do when it comes to the scriptures is this can't just be informational, this has to be formational. And the only difference here is time. It's consistency, and it's the amount that we're allowing this to move from just, oh, I'm gaining knowledge, or I heard a sermon on YouTube or something like that. But when we sit with that, it moves from information to formation, and something's forming us, we just get to choose what it is. If it's the constant scroll of social media, if it's a 24-hour news cycle, that's forming us. And that's why I think the, the increase of anxiety and fear is not a surprise because it's moving from information to formation, but what if we use the scriptures to move from information to formation? And we let those things begin to form us. And lastly, I would just encourage you when it comes to redirecting your focus is to Sabbath, rest, stop the, the, the just wild frenetic energy that's just coming and just begin to refocus your gaze. Again, Swoboda says to keep a Sabbath is to give time and space on our calendar to the grace of God. We have to be able to refocus on that. So remember his faithfulness, redirect our focus. And lastly, we have to rest in his future. We have to rest in his future. And, and, and it's, it's his, it's his, it belongs to him. It already exists in a space that we're curious about, but uh, our tendency is to want to try and predict the future, to know the future so somehow we can brace ourselves accordingly. And God's not asking us to brace for the future. He's asking us to rest in the one who holds the future. So my, my prayer today is similarly to Vienna. 
uh, encountering a storm she's never encountered before, that her knee-jerk reaction is to find herself in the arms of the Father, to depend on me carrying her to the car. Would we do the same thing today in the middle of the storm you're going through? Would we come and would we find ourselves embraced by the arms of our Father, that we'd remember His faithfulness, redirect our focus and rest in His future? And understand that instead of God is trying to get us to the other side of the lake to get us through the storm, there's something He wants to do in us. And and in a word, it's dependence. He wants us to grow in our dependence. So let me pray that God will continue to, to form our souls in such a way that we're not looking for any other thing to give our peace other than Him. Father, thank you so much for who you are. And, and Lord, just recently hearing how while the world is in a state of panic, followers of Jesus can be in a state of peace. And Lord, thank you. That's not doesn't mean that we're removed from society or the circumstances. But Lord, we have a different focus, Lord Jesus. We can remember your faithfulness, Lord. We know that you hold the future. So God, I pray in the midst of our own storms of life, Lord, that we would realize that instead of just trying to get out of it, there's something you want to do in the midst of it. Let us understand that and rest in that. Lord, we love you so much. I pray that every single person right now as they're watching this would just take a deep breath and receive the gift of your presence and your peace, Lord Jesus. We love you so much. In your name we pray. Amen. Grace and peace.